All right, we are currently in a study of 1 Corinthians. And Paul has just spent the first four chapters of this letter uh, addressing the problem of church unity. Okay, what does it look like when a church is divided, right? A church can't be healthy, can't do the things it's supposed to do, cannot be effective in its community or effective in the world if the people inside the church are fighting. Okay, quite specifically in Corinth, they were following different leaders, right? Half of the people said, well, I follow Paul. Half of them said, no, I follow Apollos. And they were divided in all of these different things. Okay, so here's a a funny story. Uh, Just this past Sunday, we had our church's fantasy football draft. Okay, I'm very optimistic that my football team will roll over everyone else and I'll keep you posted. Uh, But Tommy, our our deacon who's in charge of our fantasy football league, divided us into two teams. We're Team Paul and Team Apollos, okay, which is hilarious. Um, I was just excited one of our deacons actually listened to any of the sermons I've been preaching. So I thought that was a win. We're doing good. Thank you, Luke. Okay, but in the game that matters, uh, if we're divided— if we're not all building on the foundation of Jesus, if we are not a gospel-centered people, then we will fail as the kingdom of God. Fair enough? Okay, so that's the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. Now, starting in chapter 5, Paul moves on into addressing some very specific problems. Okay, these are the problems that were written in a letter to Paul, and now he's responding and telling this church in Corinth, okay, you've got these problems, here's how you solve them. Okay, and the first several problems, what we'll spend the next several chapters talking about, are problems that all have to do with sex. Okay, again, a lot of heads popped up at that. If I didn't have your attention before, I have it now, right? Okay, how does the gospel apply to these very specific problems? Notice 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord, Jesus, on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Right. It is almost certain uh, that Paul is talking in this passage about a man who is sleeping with his stepmom. Right? And in their world, it is entirely likely that the stepmom is closer in age to the son than she would be to his father. Okay? This isn't really an Oedipus kind of thing. All right? But Paul looks at this situation and he says, okay, even the Roman pagans, even those people who don't know God at all, know that this is wrong. In sex, it is not okay to just go with whatever your desires are. Certain boundaries have to be respected. This guy is living outside of them. So, what does Paul say that the church should do? Quite bluntly, he says, you need to kick this guy out of your church. Hand him over to Satan. Maybe if you kick him out of the church, he can come to his senses. He can find salvation. This man is a cancer You have to cut him out of the body if you want to save the church, 
right? This is pretty clear instruction. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can say to argue or debate about this text, right? All right, and I'm not going to argue with Paul about whether or not this is a sin. It certainly is. Paul's very clear about that. The Bible's very clear about that. Uh, but I do have a few problems with this text, things that as I'm reading this text, I'm going, okay, what in the world are we as Christians supposed to do with this? How do we deal with a text like this? Okay, so if you're taking notes, I've given you some spaces on the front of your bulletin uh, where you can write down these three problems. Okay, here's problem number one I have with this text. All right, I don't want to be judgmental like the Pharisees. Okay, that's my first thing. Okay, because here we go. Sermon on the Mount, right? The most famous sermon in the history of the world. Jesus says one of the most quoted lines in the entire Bible. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Those are the words of Jesus. We believe those, right? Thank you. All right, so here's what Paul, though, says in 1 Corinthians 5. I have passed judgment. What do we do with that? The worst condemnations that Jesus gives in Scripture were to religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who looked at all the people around them and said, these people aren't living up to the standards of holiness that we should be living to. They are not godly enough in their lives, and so we are judging them. Okay, the Pharisees were very judgmental people, and Jesus comes along and he says, don't do that. Okay, one of the worst ways for a church to die a horrible death is for the church to turn into a bunch of Pharisees. Okay, we've run into Christians like that before, right? Okay, uh, if you've been around for very long at all, you've run into some Christians who are very judgmental. I don't want to be like that. Does anyone want to be around those people? Okay, no. Okay, I want to overflow with grace and mercy, not judgmentalism. All right, so what would it look like if we kicked out all the sinners from GCC? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be here. Uh, Randy certainly wouldn't be here, right? None of the rest of you would be here either, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, it's true, right? All right, I want everyone to do something with me for a second. Everyone say this with me. Say, I am not good enough to be here. Do we believe that? Okay, we are here because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, if Jesus has extended enough grace for me to be here, in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner, I want to extend grace to other people, no matter what their sins are. Right? I don't want to be judgmental like the Pharisees. Right, so here's number two. That's my first problem. Number two. Right, I want to be a church that welcomes even the worst of the worst. I don't care what all you got into in your past. You are welcome here. We should open our arms to everybody. Because that's what Jesus did. Right? We should be welcoming to tax collectors and prostitutes and drug dealers. Okay? Even politicians and Alabama fans are welcome here. Randy, it's going to be a hard morning for you. I'm just, just letting you know. Okay, in all seriousness, though, there's not a single thing that you could come up to us this morning and confess, and we would say, oh, well, if that's your thing, then you're not welcome here. Okay? There's not a single sin that you could confess to us this morning that we would say, well, then you're out. You're done. All right? I guarantee you that amongst all the folks on our leadership team, we have heard somebody before say the same thing that you're struggling with today, whatever it is. Okay? 
We've seen it before. There's nothing new under the sun. And the church is a place of healing. We take in people who need Jesus in their lives and we help them find Jesus, right? That's what we're doing. We're in the business of bringing in the broken. Jesus is the only source of hope. And I want to be a church that welcomes everybody. All right. My third problem with this text. I want to mind my own business. Okay, I've got struggles in my life. You've got struggles in your life. Nobody's perfect. Um, I don't want you pointing out everything that I've got wrong. And so I'm not going to point out everything that you've got wrong. We've got to treat others the way that we want to be treated. Uh, That's another thing that Jesus said that's a fairly famous quote, right? Treat others as you would have them treat you. If I don't want you all up in my business, then I need to not be all up in your business, right? Okay, Um, are all three of these points fair? I can back up all three of them with Scripture if we need to, right? I can show you book, chapter, and verse, all three of these things. Uh, These are all straight out of the New Testament. Fair enough? So what in the world am I supposed to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says, I judge this man, kick him out of the church? All right. Um, I don't actually believe that Jesus and Paul are in conflict. Um, In fact, if you go on and continue reading in even the Sermon on the Mount itself and the rest of the stuff that Jesus says, Jesus will very specifically say there are times as Christians we are supposed to pass judgment. Right? It is not a blanket rule that you can't ever judge anything as evil in the rest of your life, right? Jesus says very clearly, some things are wrong, some things are right. And as Christians who are living in the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God, we should be able to look at sin and say, you know what? That's sin and that that's not okay, right? Um, just because we're not supposed to be a judgmental people doesn't mean we can't ever call sin, sin, right? Uh, for instance, read Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus will even talk about how to kick people out of church if they get to a point where they will not get right with God. Okay? Uh, judging things sinful or okay is not as simple as just a yes, no, we're going to judge or not judge. Okay, so if Paul is divinely inspired when he writes 1 Corinthians 5, okay, and I think he is, right, and if we're right about these three points, which I think we are, uh, then what really is the point that Paul would have us take away from this, right? And the the point I'm about to show is something I want you to write down. Okay, this is something we have talked about before, but it comes up over and over in Paul's letters, and so it's something we're going to hit over and over again because this is part of what does it mean to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ trying to live in the way of Jesus, okay? Because of the freedom that Jesus has bought for us, we don't follow a set of rules, But that doesn't mean that anything goes. I know that's longer than any point I've probably ever had before. But it matters. This is what we're doing. This is who we are supposed to be. I think part of what was going on in Corinth is that the Corinthians were rejoicing. Because they said, because of Jesus, we don't follow a law anymore. Right? We don't have the Ten Commandments like they did back in the day, right? Jesus hasn't, or God hasn't told us exactly how to live every single area of our lives. Jesus has brought freedom for us. And so the Corinthians thought, well, that means I get to do anything that I want to. Okay, and Paul says no. Right? Following Jesus doesn't mean that you lower your moral standards. Okay, it actually means that you raise your moral standards. Right, and again, this is something we've talked about numerous times. We're going to keep coming back to it. 
Okay, but instead of following a law, following Jesus looks like becoming more like Jesus. Okay, Paul talks earlier in this letter how we develop the mind of Christ. Other places he'll say we're supposed to have a heart that longs for Jesus. Okay, and when we become more like Jesus, then no matter what situation we get into, we will act like Jesus should. Okay, or like we should following Jesus. Okay, so even though there may not be a specific rule that says your stepmom is off limits, okay, you should know better. Okay, and you do know better. Okay. All right, just this week, my youngest, who is new to kindergarten, he came home and he had a hole in his shirt. Okay, it was a, about a three-inch hole, just a gap, just right across his, his shirt that he'd gone to school in that morning. And so Rachel asked him, what happened? He goes, I don't know, Mom. Likely story, right? So I asked, I was like, Sam, what happened? He goes, I don't know, Dad. Maybe something happened on the playground. Maybe something happened at lunch. I don't know. I said, well, Sam, you're not going to be in trouble if something, you know, accidentally happened, but we, I, I just want to know what happened. And so he gets real close to me so Mom can't hear, and he says, I cut it in art class with my scissors. <sighs> All right. Okay, had he ever had a rule in his life that said, do not cut your shirt with scissors? No, we'd never given him a specific rule that said that. But did he know better? Absolutely, he knew better. Okay, and then in the punishment phase, <laughs> um, the punishment was much harder for lying to me and to my face than it was for cutting a hole in his shirt, right? Okay, but here's my point. When you're raising kids, you don't give them a specific rule for every single thing. Okay, life's too big for that. There's too many things that, that can happen in that. But you give your kids some specific rules, and then also what you're really trying to do is teach them wisdom so that they know right from wrong no matter what situation they get in. Okay? So I don't have to tell them, okay, here's the rule. Don't cut your shirt with scissors. Here's the rule. Don't cut your pants with scissors. Here's the rule. Don't cut your shoes with scissors, right? No, I teach him the principle of you take care of your stuff, and then he can apply that to any number of things in his life. Right, well, the way that the Bible works, the way that God works with us, he doesn't give us a very specific rule for every single thing in our lives. Okay, but he teaches us principles of being like Jesus that we can apply to any situation. And when we learn those things and develop that wisdom, then we'll make good choices no matter what we face. Does that all work? All right. If JJ's on board, I'm doing good. I like that. JJ's my new amen corner, um, and all of you, all the rest of you need to be more like JJ. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's keep going. Verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, this is a, a very Jewish reference that Paul is making here. Um, but he's going back to the Passover celebration we first read about in the book of Exodus, right? We remember that story. Uh, when Moses led us out of Egypt, uh, we don't have time to bake bread, right? So we bake our bread without leaven and we eat it in a hurry as we're on our way out. And then forever after that, we celebrate on a yearly basis, every spring, the Passover. 
Okay? Now, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus will co-opt the whole thing and say that he is the Passover lamb par excellence, right? He's the one leading us to freedom. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one that takes all of our sins away, okay? And we have this big link between God freeing us from slavery in Egypt and God freeing us from slavery to our sins, and it's all because of Jesus. Yay, Passover, right? Okay, when we take communion every week, we're doing it as a Passover reenactment kind of celebration, right? That's why we have unleavened bread squares when we take our communion, okay? It, it's a Passover reference. All right, now, uh, the commandment that God gave for the Passover in Exodus is that the Jews were supposed to go through their house and get rid of all the yeast, right? We take that very seriously, okay? So over time, the tradition had grown up that every Passover, the Jews would take a candle, the whole family would go through every room of the house and look for yeast, Make sure that they got rid of all their yeast from the entire house. Right? Many scholars think that's where we get spring cleaning from. Okay? Seriously, right? Okay, we got spring cleaning from this idea that every spring you go through your entire house and you make sure you get rid of all the stuff that's not supposed to be there. Very specifically with the Jews. And it's not like they were worried, oh, we're going to find some, you know, a loaf of bread under this couch we didn't know about, right? That's not, that's not the worry, right? But we're very symbolically saying we take our purity before God so seriously that we will go room by room making sure that we get rid of anything that would be offensive to God. So notice the reference that Paul makes and the metaphor that he's making here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, Paul is saying we need to treat our sins like the Jews treated the yeast at Passover. Okay, there's not a Jew in the world who took this seriously, right? They would say, ah, well, there's a little bit of yeast here, but it's no big deal. Okay, and yet what do we do with our sins? We see sin around us and we say, ah, well, this little bit's no big deal. Paul says we treat our sins like the Jews treated yeast at Passover. We have to get rid of all of it if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus. All right, so here's my number two if you're taking notes. All right, we need to work on increasing our holiness, not on learning to live with our woundedness. Because what we tend to do as sinful fallen people is we adjust our lives around our character flaws rather than fixing our character flaws to become more like Jesus. All right, when we first bought a house in Texas, um, this would have been back in 07, which was a great time to buy a house. Yeah, bought a house in 07. All right, and the door from the garage into the house, when you pulled the door to, it wouldn't click unless you lifted the handle just a little bit, okay? So I got very used to, every time I would walk into the house, I would shut the door, and then you'd lift it a little bit to make it click so that the door would stay shut, okay? Did that for a long time. Then one day, my father-in-law came over. He's a very handy guy. He says, hey, your door's not sticking right, so I adjusted the plate on it, okay? And in about two minutes, he fixed my door, Right Now, my tendency as a homeowner would have been just for years to go and keep lifting that thing and not even thinking about it, right? Okay, and you get used to living with something that's broken rather than going through the little bit of effort that it would take to fix it. Don't do that with your character. But that's what we do, right? We do that with sin in our lives all the time. You know, if I've got a greed problem or a gossip problem or an anger problem, I'll just adjust the rest of my life to accommodate that, 
right, rather than do the work of fixing it. That makes sense? So do we spend time in deep reflection, fully cutting off those sinful parts of ourselves? Okay, and of course, the harder part in this text is that Paul says it's not just about the sin in my own life that I need to do this with. It's also about the sin in the church, and that's a whole lot harder. Okay, and so that's where we'll go with the last part of this text. Notice starting in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Right, a lot of things that we could say about this. Uh, one of the, the points that we won't spend a lot of time on is there in verse 12, okay, where Jesus says, our business isn't judging all those people out there. Right? Our business is judging people in here. Okay, because what's it really easy to do, and what do we do even in sermons a lot, right? We can stand up and say, man, look at all the wickedness out there in the world. Isn't that terrible? Aren't you glad that we don't live like those pagans? Okay? And what that does is it pats ourselves on the back, and it makes us feel really good about ourselves, and doesn't do anything at all to advance the kingdom of God. And in fact, it makes us like the Pharisees that we read about in Matthew, right? Okay, my business is not to judge all the wickedness in the world. Those people don't know Jesus. What do we expect out of those people? Okay? Our business is to worry about our business. All right. Um, I think, though, with this, well, here's his main point. Here's number three. If you're taking notes, write this down. I think we are accountable to each other. If we are really being a healthy church, if we're really being the kind of church that God has called us to be, then we will be accountable to each other. To the point where if someone among us refuses to announce blatant sin in their lives, we will kick them out. Okay? And here's where I'm at on this, right? Um, again, this goes back to I want to treat you the way that I would want you to treat me. If I've got something that is fundamentally broken in my life, if I'm engaged in some sin that you can see that is blatant and I am blatantly unrepentant about it, I hope that you would love me enough to come to me and say, David, this is something in your life you need to get right. And if I hope that you would treat me that way, then I hope that you would want to be treated in the same way. Where if I see something in your life that is blatantly sinful and you were being hard-headed and obstinate about it, not that any of us would be stubborn in this room, right? If you're saying, no, that's just the way I want to live, I hope that I could come to you and say, no, you need to get this right in your life. And I hope that as a loving family coming together that we would love each other enough to say to each other, you need to get this right, and if you don't, then you really can't be a part of who we are anymore because we're trying to do something that's following in the way of Jesus. And if you're going to live completely apart from that, you can't be part of this family anymore. Not because I'm holier than you are, okay, but because we're on different pages, we're doing different things, we're going different directions. Now, part of this presupposes that we will have the kind of relationship with each other that we can do that. Okay? 
Um, there's people in this room that we're pretty close to each other, right? And that we have that kind of relationship and we can do that. Okay, there's some others of us here who like to keep on the periphery, right? Um, not going to join any groups, going to come in late and leave early, right? Not going to get close to anybody. And then we can't have the kind of relationship that Paul is describing in this text. Is that fair? Okay, so... Um, if you're not involved in what we're doing, if you're not part of the groups that we have, the connection groups, the supper clubs, the Bible classes, all of those opportunities, right, I hope that you'll come in a little closer. I hope that we'll draw a little bit tighter together so that we can have the kind of relationship where we actually can help each other as we're trying to go through this life following Jesus together. That all work? That all make sense? All of us need this in our lives. All of us need people who will hold us accountable. Uh, you will never be um, as Christ-like on your own as you can be when you're amongst a group of believers walking on the same road with you. All right, we're going to continue these discussions about holiness and what does it look like to be this loving family as we get deeper in this letter. Uh, but at this time in our worship service, we are going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, and during the singing of this song, this is a time where we as the church want to be here for you. I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that is going on in your life. Again, this is a time where we want to be here for you. And before we sing that song, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.